Let's pray together. Father, we are all gathered here now to hear from you. And Lord, we pray that you would write these words on our hearts. And we pray that these words would speak to us in the moment of temptation, when idolatry seems so attractive. Lord, we ask that you would call us back to yourself, and we pray that you would use the words of Psalm 115 to do it. We pray that you would make us people who know that the dead will not praise you, people who know that these these vanities will not satisfy us. And Lord, we ask that you would give us righteous contentment as we walk with you. We pray it for your glory in the name of Christ. Amen. I would invite you to open the Bible this morning to Psalm 115. And if you didn't bring a copy of the Scriptures, there's one in the pew in front of you. And if you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, please do feel free to take that one with you. Here's the question for us as we consider Psalm 115 this morning. Is the Lord your God? Are you worshiping Him alone? Now, to, to try to diagnose our own hearts, I want to put this same question, is the Lord your God? Are you worshiping Him alone? I want to put this a little bit more particularly. Is your supreme delight and greatest happiness? So when you think of what would make you most excited, what would give you the, the greatest joy, is your, is that Mike Walker? You look just like Mike Walker, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Former member of Kenwood that's not here, sorry. Back on track now. I just looked up and saw this guy, you look just like Mike Walker, sorry. Do you think so, Matt? <laughs> All right, back on track now, sorry. When you think of what would make you happiest is your supreme delight and greatest happiness something that God has forbidden. You see what I'm saying there? Is it, is it an expression of some desire that God has built into you, a desire for some satisfaction or for some exercise of power or for the use of some resources? Is your greatest delight something that God has not, forbid, not, not allowed you to have, something He has forbidden, or is it something He has chosen not to give you right now? If your answer to that question is yes, if you would say, yes, my, my greatest excitement, my greatest delight, my greatest happiness is in something that God has either forbidden to me, it's in some sinful exercise, or if it's something that God has chosen not to give you right now, you are not worshiping God alone. Two-part statement that is really going to be the theme of, of this sermon as we look at Psalm 115. Worshiping the Lord alone leads to righteous contentment. Worshiping the Lord alone leads to righteous contentment. Contentment means I have eaten enough and I'm satisfied. It means I have, 
I have enjoyed God, God's, goods gifts, God, God's good gifts to me, and I am satisfied. Righteous means in my enjoyment of God's good gifts, I did not transgress his commands. It means in my exercise of, of the body that God gave to me, I did, not, I did not veer into some kind of perversion. Worshiping the Lord alone leads to righteous contentment. Here's the other side of that coin. Worshiping idols produces unrighteous discontent. Worshiping idols will lead you into perverse expressions of the use of your body and the satisfaction of your desires. Things that transgress God's commands, things that God has forbidden. Worshiping idols will lead you there. Unrighteous discontent. You'll be left, after you do this, you worship these idols, you've, you've exalted something else to the place of the Lord, you're looking for, for whatever it is, money, sex, power, uh, you're looking for something else to do for you what only God can do for you, which is satisfy your soul at the deepest level. You do that, you're going you're gonna to veer into perversion, and you're going to be left, in the words of Ephesians 4.19 in the old 1984 NIV, you're going to be left with a continual lust for more. You will have a greedy desire for more. It will not satisfy you. You will have unrighteous discontent. As we look at Psalm 115 this morning, it is astonishing to me, again, that God has given us a work of art to address our problems. This psalm, this psalm is a work of art, and the Psalter as a whole is a work of art, an astonishing work of art. Because what you have in the book of Psalms is you have a poetic retelling of the whole story of the Bible. Uh, from, from the designation of, of David as, as the one through whom the king is going to come, you trace his life into the line of his kings, to the exile, and then into the future salvation. This whole story is told as you move across the Psalms. And then you have these, this, this uh, mosaic constructed of these individual stones that are worthy of individual examination. And so what we're going to do today is it's like we're taking this gemstone, this work of art of Psalm 115, and we're examining this thing, and we want to consider how the Lord intends to shape us through this particular uh, beautiful rock that is part of this glorious mosaic of the story that the whole Psalter is telling. So this psalm, you won't be surprised to hear me say this, has a chiastic structure. Uh, look at the first verse. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. So the first verse is saying God gets the glory. Look at the last verse, verse 18. We will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord, the Lord being the Lord's name. So verse 1, to your name give glory. Verse 18, praise Yahweh, praise God's name. And then look at verse 2. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Look at verse 17. The dead do not praise the Lord. Who are the dead? The dead are the worshipers of idols. And this psalm is going to tell us that the idols are dead. And it's going to say in verse 8, those who make them, those who make idols, become like them, dead. So why should the nations are not worshiping God? And then verse 17, the nations, the dead, they don't praise the Lord. Look at verse 3, our God is in the heavens. 
He does all that he pleases. Look at verse 16. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children. Heavens, the Lord, and then he does what he pleases. He's given the earth to the children of man. And then there are these corresponding sections. Verses 4 through 8 are on the vanity and the deadness of the idols. And that matches verses 12 through 15 where uh, the psalmist celebrates what God does for his people. And in the middle of the whole thing, verses 9 through 11, there's this emphasis on trusting the Lord. So trusting the Lord is at the center. The vanity of the idols and the effectiveness of the Lord is outside that. And then these statements that we looked at that correspond to one another in the first three verses and the last three verses. This is a work of art. God, God has been pleased to inspire a poet to create a work of art. And I think part of the purpose here is we're intended to memorize this thing. And, and this structure, this chiastic structure, is intended as an aid to memory. And then, you know, there's this great statement in, in the book of Isaiah. I don't know the address, but you Google these words, you'll find it. Um, the, the, Isaiah says, you will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way. Walk in it. it when, when, when we've got things like this memorized, and, and we get confronted with some expression of idolatry, some, some temptation to veer off into perversion, the Psalms start talking to us. The voice behind us starts saying to us, this is the way. Walk in it. So here's a point of application for you uh, this morning. I would encourage you to memorize Psalm 115. You will not regret it. You, you, will, you will thank me. You memorize this psalm, you live on this psalm, and I don't doubt that many of you, if you do this, you're going to come up to me later and say, thank you so much for exhorting me to memorize Psalm 115. You don't have to come tell me, but it'll encourage me if you do. There's a, there's a beautiful uh, structure here, and um, much of it is characterized by repetition. Let's look at Psalm 115, verse 1. The psalmist begins, you know, I think this is one of the most beautiful statements in the whole Bible. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Um, one of the reasons that statement is so beautiful to me is because almost 20 years ago now, July 25th, 1998, uh, at our wedding, God is so merciful to us, and he gives us such good gifts. One of the gifts that God has blessed me with is Denny Burke's friendship. And at our wedding, Jill and I are standing there before Mike Roddy, who officiated our wedding ceremony, and Denny steps up to pray, and he prayed that verse in the NAS. And, and for that reason, I think the NAS is more beautiful here than the ESV. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to thy name give glory, because of thy loving kindness, because of thy truth. I'm tempted to read this whole prayer to you that, that I keep in my Greek New Testament, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to resist that urge. And, and I, and I want to talk about this, this verse and the function that it would have at a place like a wedding. Uh, we, are, we are like idol factories. Our hearts, we are spring-loaded to worship something other than the Lord. And that verse is so appropriate because the truth is, if you worship your spouse, you're going to ruin your marriage. Your spouse, as just the other day, some of us were listening to a man who 
uh, is afflicted with same-sex attraction and will likely be celibate for his whole, whole life, but he's committed to the Bible's teaching. He's committed to the Bible's... He's a pastor, and he was talking about how he, do, he officiates weddings, and he tells people out of the satisfaction that he's found in worshiping the Lord, he tells people, uh, your spouse cannot bear you worshiping. You're, you're, she cannot bear, he or she cannot bear you turning him or her into an idol. If you do that, you will have a miserable marriage. You're meant to worship the Lord alone. Our culture worships at the idol of sex. Uh, this week I read a friend of ours named Jonathan Lehman, and he was talking about how um, one of the idols of our culture is freedom, and, and this, this gets wrapped up in this, um, I mean, the philosophical name for this is expressive individualism. And what expressive individualism means is my individual desire and my desire to express what I want to do matters more than other people. So I'm going to express my individualism, and I don't care what effect it has upon you. If that means I ruin my children's lives because I divorced my wife, that's fine. I don't care. If it means I ruin my wife's life because I am unfaithful, I don't care. I'm an expressive individualist. This is this philosophy. It means that my feelings, what I desire, and the way things make me feel outrank God's Word. It doesn't matter what God's Word says. I feel that that is harmful. It means, it means that I'm an idolater is what it means. And the idol being worshipped is the self. And what uh, Jonathan Lehman wrote that's connected with this is he said that when the self is the idol that's being worshipped, uh, sexual expression becomes religious freedom. The freedom to you know, express your sexuality however you want to do it, that becomes a religious act of worship. It becomes a religious freedom. You're living out your faith if, if that's, if you're, if that's your, your creed, if that's your idol. Worshiping idols produces unrighteous discontent. If you're an expressive individualist, you're going to be unrighteous with your body. You are not going to do 1 Thessalonians 4 and control your own member and not defraud one another in these matters. You're going you're to be unfaithful, you're going to be deviant, you're going to be perverse, and you're going to be left with Ephesians 4.19 in the NIV 84's translation. You're going to be left with a continual lust for more. Psalm 115, verse 1, not to us, O Lord, not to us. Why is he saying this? In saying this, he's implying we are not worthy of this glory. We're not worthy of glory. Why? Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your loving kindness, for the sake of your faithfulness or your truth. None of us has the loving kindness and the truth of the Lord. So none of us deserves the glory that the psalmist is calling the Lord to give to himself. So this, this uh, repetition is, is a confession. We don't embody love and truth the way the Lord does, does. He loves in a way that no sinner can. He is true in ways that no one who is not altogether righteous, holy, omniscient, and good could ever be. To recognize the Lord's superiority is to recognize that he should glorify himself not those who lack his perfection. 
Verse 2. The fact that the psalmist is asking this question shows that he knows the nations have reason to ask this question, right? So the nations are looking at Israel and they're saying, oh, you claim your God is almighty. I don't see that in action. You claim your God has made these promises about how you're going to have everlasting pleasures at his right hand. We don't see that. You see, you see how it's working? Where's your God? The psalmist is, is, is recognizing that the nations are saying, if your God is so good, why are your lives so bad? That's, that's what's going on here. The nations can see the disparity between what the Lord has promised, who the Lord claims to be, and the circumstances of God's people. Uh, when the nations ask this question, where is your God? Do you know what they also show? They show that they don't fear the Lord. They don't fear the Lord. They don't expect the Lord to put things right. They don't believe God's promises or claims about who he is. But for the psalmist to say in verse 2, why should the nation say, where is their God? You, you see what he's doing? He's confessing that he does believe God's claims. He does believe God's character and the promises that he's made. And what he's asking is, why should the circumstances be allowed to continue that prompt the nations to ask this? So it's, it's, it's implicit, but, but it's also explicit, isn't it? If you understand how the rhetorical question functions. Why should the nation say, where is their God? You hear what he's saying, Lord, put things right. Put things right. And then there's the affirmation of faith in verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. The psalmist is saying, our God is exactly where he should be. He's exactly where we think he is. And he's doing whatever pleases him. Um, this answer, our God is in the heavens... It maintains God's transcendence. God is above us. It also affirms that if he's in the heavens, if he transcends us, we should expect that, that he is beyond our comprehension. Right? So this is an affirmation of faith that, that addresses the problem, the disparity between what God claims he is and what he promises and what our circumstances are. And it says, look, I don't have all the information. I don't have all the answers, but our God is in the heavens and he does whatever pleases him. It also reaffirms God's sovereign goodness. He does whatever pleases him. What is going to please him? Look back at verse 1. Steadfast love. Faithfulness, loving kindness, truth. This is, this is a statement of faith. The challenge of living by faith is the challenge of dealing with the, the, the apparent to our perception disconnect between God's love and truth and the way our lives look. And the psalmist is responding to that by saying, he's in the heavens, he's above my comprehension, and he does whatever pleases him. And what pleases him is loving kindness and truth. Nothing can stop him from doing his good pleasure. No human can fully understand all his ways. So by faith, the psalmist persists in believing God in spite of the circumstances that call his faith into question. I don't have all the answers. I don't know all God's purposes, but he's in the heavens. 
and he does everything that pleases him. And then, and then this is another, verses 4 through 8 here, this is a, sort of another apologetic step. Apologetics is answering the objections to the faith. Here's, here's one angle on the apologetic process. Consider the alternatives. If, if you're tempted to go away from the Lord, you're thinking maybe Christianity's not scratching all the itches you're feeling, consider the alternatives. In, in verse 4, he's going to say that the idols are the work of human hands. In verse 8, he's going to refer to those who make them, the, the people who make them. And that reference to the idols being man-made brackets this section. The works of human hands, those who make them, same terminology in Hebrew. Uh, and, and that's, so that's putting a, a bookend around verses 4 through 8. He's going to start in verse 4, um, in this meditation on idolatry. He's going to start with the material out of which the idols are made and with the craftsmen who form them. Uh, but as we, as we start into, into this, I should observe that what he's doing here is he's con the psalmist is consciously developing the teaching of Moses. Uh, you heard earlier in the service, Chris read uh, Deuteronomy 4. And in Deuteronomy 4, the Lord warned Israel, if, if, you, if you break the covenant and you commit idolatry, you're going to be banished to other lands, and there you will serve idols of wood and stone, the work of men's hands that don't see or hear or smell. And, and what the psalmist here is developing those ideas. So he starts in verse 4, their idols are silver and gold. And you may, th may think, well, those are precious metals. Those are, those are really good things, right? Well, yeah, but which is more valuable and which is more capable? Which can you do more with something that man makes, like silver and gold, or flesh and bone? Living flesh and bone is a... Is a have you ever thought about how light your bones are? Your, your bones are so resilient, they will actually heal themselves if given the opportunity, if you break them. And, and they're so strong. I mean, you can run on your bones. Uh, earlier this morning, I was marveling at the way that my 11-year-old uh, son, we're going down some stairs, and, and he, he sort of took this flying leap off the top step and just landed safely uh, at the bottom of the stairs. And I'm thinking to myself... That would have been really painful on my back if I had done that. Or my ankles would have been... That would, but our bodies are marvelous works of ingenuity. And an idol of silver and gold can't compare. It's not alive. It's dead. It's lifeless. Yeah, it's a precious metal, but it's just going to sit there. And then the maker of these things, they're crafted by human hands. The way this is worded, the work of human hands, if you turn on your, your, your psalm antennae, I think phrases like, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers. And then later in Psalm 8, he talks about how uh, the, the, the creation is the work, it, the creation, all that exists, is the works of God's hands. So this is kind of, this is a contrast between the creation of God and the creation of the Lord. Unlike creation, Made by God, these idols are made by humans. And whereas God makes living things of organic living material, these idols are made of nothing but dead metal. And then their dead inability to perceive 
or respond comes into focus in verses 5 through 7. So the, these human craftsmen who make these idols, they can shape a form with the appearance of a mouth or eyes, ears, noses, hands, feet, throats. But these things don't live. They can't speak, see, hear, smell, feel, walk, or make any sound. So I'm just going to read through this. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. Ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. Hands, but do not feet. Uh, do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make any sound in their throat. The fact that the idol can't speak means the idol can't reveal truth, nor can it communicate wisdom. The fact that the idol can't see means that the idol has no ability to perceive your needs. Now, you may say to me, you may say, oh, come on, we're talking about a culture that, that actually shaped these statues out of wood or metal or rock or something like that. We don't do that today. How does this speak to our idolatry? How does this speak to the expression? And, and we've got idolatry in our culture. People don't bow down in front of statues, but we got idolatry. People are bowing at the altar of sex, money, power, and, and beauty, and we could, we could, we could you know, continue the list. Well, can money see your needs? Can money hear your prayers? The idol that cannot see also cannot behold or, or see whether you obey it or disobey it. You're unaccountable to that idol. The idol that cannot hear cannot receive prayers that you offer to it. The idol can't, that can't smell, I think the point of the smelling reference is that the Lord, he smells the pleasing aroma of the sacrifices of his people, which means he delights in the praises of his people. He's honored by his people. Idols are not honored when you worship them. They are gonna, they're going to go on unfeeling, disregarding you. They're going to ruin your life, and then they're going to throw you away like trash is what your idols are going to do to you. With no ability to feel with its hands or walk with its feet, the idol will never come to your aid. You may say to me, oh, come on, Jim. Money's got hands and feet. Money can do so much for me. You know what I'm going to say in response? The Bible says that money is going to sprout wings and fly away. And you just watch. It'll happen. You may think you've got all you need, and it will never be enough. And it will find ways of, it'll be like that ring that Bilbo had. It'll grow too large and slip off your finger and betray you at your, at your most desperate time of need. Sex may seem to live. It may seem to make you alive. If you worship it, Ephesians 4.19 is going to be your life verse, a continual lust for more. If you worship sex, if you put that in the center of your life, you will never have satisfaction. You will never have the experience of feeling like this is the right thing at the right time in the right amount and I can now move on to the worship of God and, and have this thing that was built to point me to God point me to something beyond itself. You worship beauty, age will expose the vanity of your idol. Only the worship of the living God will result in righteous 
contentment. Uh, look at the end of verse 7 there. They do not make any sound in their throat. That idol won't even growl at you. It can't even frighten off an enemy or warn you. The idol doesn't remember. It doesn't perceive. It cannot help. The idol is lifeless. It, it has no experience of God's world. It simply sits there in its dead incapacity and incompetence. It may, be, it may seem like it's offering life to you. It may seem like it's offering satisfaction. It's a lie. Don't believe its enticements. Verse 8. Those who make them become like them. And, and right after that line in my copy of the Bible, I've written the word dead. Those who make them become like them. This is true experientially, and it's true eschatologically. Experientially, you worship idols, you know what you're going to find? Your perceptive capacities are dulled. You're, you worship idols, your taste buds are, are going to they're, they're feel like they're not awake. Your sight, you're not going to perceive the world. You're, you're not going to hear other people. You're going to become insensitive, selfish, self-focused, dissatisfied, and miserable. You're going to be a walking dead person. And then, that's experientially, and then eschatologically, you're going to face judgment. And you're going to die. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Don't trust them. Those who make and trust in idols become dead to the world, lifeless, incompetent, and useless. The psalmist doesn't want you to go that way. He wants you to trust in the Lord. So in verses 9 through 11, at the center of the psalm's chiastic structure, the psalmist is going to set up this contrast between these man-made idols that can't see needs, hear prayers, move to help, or stand to shield those who worship them. And he's going to show how the Lord helps his people, shields them from harm. And again, he employs uh, repetition as this literary device to say basically the same thing over three times. Verses 9 through 11, O Israel, trust in the Lord. That's the whole nation. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, all the priests, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, nation of Israel, priests, anybody from the nations that wants to fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. If you trust the Lord in the face of what appears to be evidence that he is not helping, and you hope in him, when it seems that recourse to sin is what's going to bring relief, satisfaction, and joy, you trust the Lord at that time, at all such times, you will find him to be enough. You will find him to pr provide a way out of the temptation. You will, provide, you will find that he will provide a way for your needs to be met. He is their help. He is their shield. You can think of the way that uh, Israel gets out to the Red Sea. Here comes the army of Pharaoh. And all the people of Israel are panicking. Moses is trusting in the Lord. Aaron, some others are trusting in the Lord. Do you remember what happened? The pillar of cloud 
And the angel of the Lord moved from being in front of Israel to being behind them, standing between Israel and Egypt so that the one did not come near the other. He is their help and their shield. The Lord said to Abraham in Genesis 15, he said, Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. You know what the greatest expression of this is? The greatest expression is the Lord Jesus mounting a cross to stand between everyone that would trust in him and almighty, everlasting wrath of God and absorbing all of God's righteous displeasure against sin on himself, shielding his people perfectly from all the judgment that was due them. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. And then, uh, in contrast to the lifeless idols, we see that the Lord is the maker. Look at, look at uh, the end of verse 15. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. This is in contrast with the man-made idols. In contrast with the man-made idols, the Lord is the creator of all things. And in contrast with those dead idols, look at verses 12 through 15, the Lord has remembered us. There's not a void inside the silver or the gold image. There's, there's a personal God on whose heart are written the names of all of his people. And he remembers us. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. Here's this repetition again. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. The Lord blesses all his people, even the unimpressive ones. The Lord, and then it goes on to the way the Lord heaps these blessings on his people. Verse 14, may the Lord give you increase, you and your children. It's extending through the generations. So the Lord's capacity to help, to shield, to bless is as certain as the existence of the world that God made. Verse 15, may you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. God's ability is as certain as the existence of this world that we inhabit. Unlike the man-made idols, the Lord is the maker of heaven and earth. Verse 16, the heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. Again, this corresponds to our God is in the heavens. Verse 3, he does all that he pleases. What is he pleased to do? God is pleased to inhabit his transcendent heavens, and he is pleased to make those in his image and likeness his vice regents and to give them the earth. And why would he do this? Not so that we would have a playground for all of our idolatry, but so that we would live out his character and, and bring to bear his authority in all the world that he made. We are meant to embody the image and the character the likeness, the, the, the way of ruling of the living God. Verse 17, the dead. Who are they? Well, that's the nations in verse 2 saying, where is their God? And it's the idolatrous nations in verse 8 becoming like those dead idols that they worship. The dead do not praise their, the, the Lord, not experientially in their lives, not eschatologically at the end of all things. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor, nor do any who go down into silence. 
instead of praising the Lord, they pay homage and honor to things that did not make them, things that cannot help them, things that are not worthy of their devotion. I mean, we, we could go to Romans 1 here and read about how people debase their, themselves through idolatry. Verse 18, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. You were made for worship. You were made experientially and eschatologically to worship the Lord. You will be most satisfied in all of God's good gifts as you obey the commands, as you walk within His instructions. You will be most satisfied if you are consciously seeking to honor God in the way that you live your life. You will, you will find that what He has given to you is enough. And, and you will find Him to be your help and your shield as you honor Him in all of life. And then... You will inhabit a world of praise when the dead are raised, which interestingly, I think, is uh, going to come into focus in the next psalm. People at all times and in all places, in the old covenant and in the new, human beings, we are infected with a tendency to look to something or someone other than the Lord to do for us what only the Lord can do for us. And, and the truths and the confessions and the repetitions and the realities of Psalm 115 are an antidote for the viral idolatries of our hearts. The living God came in the flesh, a man with eyes that see, ears that hear, a mouth that spoke, hands that felt, feet that walked. And those who behold the glory of God in the face of Christ are transformed into the same image of the Lord Jesus from one degree of glory to another. So Psalm 115 verse 8 works in the negative direction. Those who make idolatry, idols become like them, so do all who trust in them. It works in the positive direction too. Those who worship the Lord become like Christ, so do all who trust in Him. We become what we worship. If we worship dead idols, we become like them. And as verse 17 tells us, the dead do not praise the Lord. But if we worship God in Christ by the power of the Spirit, we will be renewed and transformed and become what we were created to be in the beginning. Those who bring the character and authority of the invisible God into visible reality as we rule in God's stead, subduing the earth in accordance with His purposes from the beginning. We will also enjoy righteous contentment that comes only from worshiping God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would get glory from us as we live out Your righteous instructions and as we enjoy the satisfaction that You promise they will bring. And so we pray with the psalmist, Father, not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to thy name give glory because of thy loving kindness, because of thy truth. Amen.